Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on an episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, and I have the wonderful privilege to be here with Admiral Cedric Pringle. Right now, the retired Admiral Cedric Pringle is the current president of the National Naval Officers Association. NNOA, or the National Naval Officers Association, just had their wonderful annual leadership symposium, which had wonderful presentations and discussions and forums and mentoring sessions by renowned leaders from the Marine Corps and Coast Guard and Navy all throughout the services in San Diego, California. So it was a wonderful forum, all led up by Cedric Pringle and his staff and the board of directors. And prior to this year-long stand, just over a year-long stint as president, Admiral Pringle was the commandant of the National War College at the National Defense University. And prior to that, he was the deputy commander of the Expeditionary Strike Group 3. And before that, he was the deputy commander of JIDF South, or Joint Energy Agency Task Force South, where he commanded members from all the, the joint services together. So, and previous to that, he's had many opportunities to lead members of the Navy and other services in many different commands in his long, prestigious career. And we'll have other references to his bio in the show notes. So welcome, Cedric. So excited to have you on the podcast today. Hey, Keith, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure meeting you in San Diego a few weeks ago. The NNOA is, as you know, an organization that's been around for 51 years. We're moving into our 52nd year smartly, and it was born on the campus of the Naval Academy, and uh, it was born primarily just to look at opportunities to try to mentor, coach, and assist the, the sea services in the recruiting, retention, and the career development of a more diverse officer force. And again, you got to think this was in 1972, where our nation was in the process of evolving to pretty much the nation that we are today. And those were junior officers that were doing the heavy lifting to figure out how we could get better at employing all the folks involved with our all-volunteer force. Uh, so it's just on, an honor to have served 34 and a half years in the Navy, and it's a blessing to have uh, ascended to the rank of Rear Admiral, but it's also a blessing to become president of National Naval Officers Association and an opportunity just to help others who are currently serving on active duty, folks who are transitioning, helping them transition. And one of the things we also are starting to expand our relationships with is just being more involved uh, with school-aged children and students and helping them and understand the benefits of not only a service, but also of the pursuit of STEM excellence. So we also, on Monday uh, in San Diego, had a STEM program that saw over 400 kids in the San Diego and Southern California area register. And we had them at Naval Air Station, North Island. We had everything from robotics out there to all manner of aircraft, Marine Corps craft, Navy vessels, unmanned vessels, manned vessels. Just really was an opportunity to expose them to what their future could look like. And I think our nation benefits from that by helping those young students understand that there is a path. If you take those hard classes like your calculus and your physics and some of the other STEM-based courses, there's an end state for that. And it's not just taking them for the sake of taking them. Uh, you can also become a commis commission officer in the Naval Services and go on to bigger and better things. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thanks for sharing those thoughts. And I believe it was you that and other people were advocating for the services to get more involved, not just at the high school level, but even at the middle school level, if I remember correctly. And so to do more work with 
the students there at middle school and to get more involved with STEM classes and other things because that way we can show these students the life in these services and also to build more positive experiences, but also beyond that to do things just like you did. These students might not continue their careers in the military or the Navy or the Coast Guard or the Marine Corps or the sea services as they are, but they they're going to get exposed to positive experiences in the STEM field, which is what we need a lot more of. I had this amazing opportunity when I was at LSU, sponsored by the Coast Guard, my at Louisiana State University, where the Coast Guard sent me there for grad school. Louisiana State University sent me down to Chile to do some science work down there, and I worked with the Oceanography Center down there, and I saw they did this multi-discipline program to build an app to expand STEM exposure to build to get out into their elementary and middle school because they saw that the they needed to do better job communicating the need for STEM and get out in the students. So they brought a public affairs person, they brought a computer science person, they brought, you know, an app builder and they brought their oceanographer and their environmental science all together to see how can we build an app that kids will want to play. And so I think exactly what you're doing, how do we get people talking STEM? How do we get people talking about the sea service? How do we get people working together? And it's a beautiful thing when we do that. That's really what servant leadership looks like. How do we get people working together in these diverse backgrounds so they can understand one another and then see what do we actually like so that these kids can make better informed decisions about what their future looks like? Yeah, you're spot on. And, you know, my, I was first exposed to it on my very second tour in the Navy following my first tour on uh, USS Ranger, which is an older aircraft carrier. I decided to go into recruiting. And had an opportunity and honestly, actually went into recruiting thinking about transitioning from the Navy and going on and living the, the rest of my life. But in going to the high schools, going to the colleges, going to the middle schools and talking about some of the experiences that I enjoyed, some of the responsibilities I enjoyed as a very, very young naval officer, I honestly ended up really supporting myself and selling myself on the goods of the Navy and the goods of service. So fast forward to a few years after that, when I commanded USS Macon Island, Macon Island was the Navy's first hybrid propulsion drive ship. Uh, it's a ship with a hybrid propulsion engineering system that runs on gas turbine engines for high speeds and electric motors for low speed. And so we were able to take that ship out on her uh, very first deployment. And in addition to that, we were able to take her up to San Francisco and partner with Naval Postgraduate School and partner with some of the students who were working on master's degree thesis at the time. And we also, once we got home from deployment, opened it up to some of the local students and schools in the San Diego area. And we invited them on board. These were uh, kids from uh, middle schools and elementary schools there in the San Diego area had them on board, had them walking around the ships, and you could just see their eyes just light up as they were walking around and embracing everything. And I chose not to be the tour guide, so to speak, because literally I was kind of the old guy, but I, I had a lot of young sailors who were not very far removed from those those young students and made sure that they were the ones that were actually talking about the static displays, talking about the capabilities of the ship, talking about how we were laid out and how we lived together on the city at sea. And it was just really an impactful event. And as a result of that, unbeknownst to me, after we went through the work of that, because we really just did this just to really open up opportunities to the San Diego community, 
But as a result, the ship earned the President's Volunteer Service Award. And it was pretty cool at the end of my uh, my command tour to actually receive that award that was signed by the president. And uh, most of us, we, we don't get anything signed by the president until we retire. But it was pretty cool to actually get that done. And again, that wasn't our goal. But we also availed ourselves to tutoring in the schools and helping them with math classes and science classes and things like that. And when we built the community outreach team, the only criteria I gave my chaplain, who was the chairperson of the team and, and led it, I said, look, I just want to make sure that we get sailors who are interested in helping others, who are interested in serving and not just someone who's trying to get out of a duty section or things along those lines. I want to get someone who's actually interested in making an impact and making a difference on the students. And uh, we really did that. And uh, I, I just can't thank that team enough. Yeah, it's such a wonderful thing. And like you said, such an, an impactful thing. And a, what a wonderful way to to end a great command tour. And I love that focus that you had to get people that were interested in serving and I want to kind of talk about how did you, you gave that direction to the chaplain. And it's an interesting discussion point that you had the chaplain as that person, as that kind of driving point there. I think I would imagine that might've been intentional on your part, but it may be not, I don't know. And so maybe discuss that a little bit about what that looked like, you know, how that team kind of came together and then how they went about finding those people to build such a great team that made that such a success. Uh, yes. And, and my chaplains were just phenomenal. And I, I've always focused on leveling the playing field so that every single member of my team can give their absolute best and was able to do that with that ship. And uh, honestly, we had a thousand sailors on board. And when we were deployed, we had 2000 Marines on board. So about 3000 people floating and operating and living together for about a seven month period. So I saw my goal as a commanding officer was just to level the playing field so everyone could give their absolute best. So servant leadership was embedded in everything that we did. And we had an opportunity when we came back from deployment and things were a little bit less busy. We weren't doing flight operations. We weren't doing amphibious operations. We were literally just kind of in port doing maintenance on the ship. But I knew that we could do more. And my chaplain was just phenomenally talented. And I knew that he was the right person to actually head up that team because, you know, I, I've, I've always been the type of leader. If I'm a, at sea on a ship, I go to every Sunday service. Uh, so even if I'm in command, I'm still there, obviously, unless uh, there's some operational commitment that I can't get away from. But to me, I think it matters to the rest of the crew if they see their commanding officer in those Sunday services and taking them seriously. One of the other things that we actively did is we tried to, we tried our best to clear the schedule on Sunday to make sure that it was holiday routine where you could worship, you could work out, you can rest, uh, you can recharge your battery because when you were gone for, for a seven month period, you really have to pace yourself. So we really took those Sundays and we would do movies or we would do whatever we could do to help people recharge their batteries. But all of that was centered around our Sunday services. And we always focused on basically on on every single denomination. Uh, we either had a chaplain or a lay leader uh, that led those uh, those services. And I made sure that, you know, we weren't running drills or sounding a lot of alarms and doing stuff that no that ships normally do. 
and just made sure that we weren't doing those during during the Sunday time frame to the maximum extent possible. Sometimes, you know, you had to do a, uh, a, a an underway replenishment or flight operations because that was the only time you could do it. And so we would take care of those uh, with excellence, just like we would at any other time. But for the most part, if we owned the schedule and we had the opportunity to shape it, we would certainly focus on making Sunday our downtime. That's just a wonderful way to do it. And I appreciate it. You may not know this because we, although we did meet in San Diego and we had some wonderful conversations, I don't think we had time to reflect on the fact that I did nine years in the Navy before I switched over to the Coast Guard. So, ah, cool. yeah, so I do appreciate that uh, routine and I do know how hard it is to do those things sometimes. So those schedule on those ships can be pretty brutal sometimes on those deployments. So I'm, I'm sure your crew was very appreciative of that and it does go a long way. And it just goes to show that, you know, when you're in a leadership position, the tone you set in, in that kind of mindset that you set, it, that's really what is going to set the pace for everyone around you and what they do and how they respond to that. And, you know, that, that routine, it does matter for, for what's going on. And, and I really like what Cedric said about how he made himself visible in those spaces as well, whether it was for worship or for working out or rest or just doing different things, because we also have to acknowledge that if we don't make ourselves visible in those spaces, we're not giving permission for people right. to do those things as well. And I, and I think that's super valuable. One of the things that I really respected about you that I could just see were, they weren't just words to you. And I, as we've been talking about your philosophy and command is when we were at then in an OA leadership symposium, you talked about your four focuses for that symposium were education, inspire, engagement, and elevation, if I remember correctly. Yes. And so good. I, I passed my quiz. I did <laughs> I did good. So and I just loved how you focused on it for yourself once again, giving permission and reminding people. And it was kind of that everyone went. It was People talked about it, even when you weren't present. And I think there's this value of setting that expectation of even when you're not in the room of your command philosophy or your command leadership style of, you know, of serving and, and such a focus of these, these are servant leadership attribute attributes as well, all of those. But how do you put forth commitment? And these are just four words. These, it could be any four words, but these are good ones, but you know, not focusing on these words particularly, but how do you, you know, go about taking any idea or philosophy and going forth with such commitment that people, you know, they buy into it and they they look for opportunities to talk about it in groups because that's what I saw it in in a way. And so I could imagine on on this hybrid ship or Jaiative South, this joint interagency task force where you have multiple different services working together or at the National War College, where we have these great strategic thinkers coming together, you know, all these different environments. I, I could just imagine you putting forth these environments where people are still doing the things that you're envisioning for them and putting forth. So how, so how do you set this environment What just makes people do these great things or invites people to do these great things, I should say? I think that's a great synopsis because to me, over, over the course of my 34 and a half year career, I guess my words have evolved, but my methodology has not. And honestly, at Na uh, National Naval Officers Association Symposium, to me, it's, it's evolved to those four words, educate, inspire, engage, and elevate. And to me, I've been trying to get to that point my entire career. So 
even when I was on USS Macon Island and we were embracing the challenges of new technology, untested technology, I wanted my folks to take a positive approach to that. There were some things that, some lessons that we were learning on the fly, but what I made sure that our entire crew understood was that our three and four star bosses, as well as the citizens of America, didn't really care about our challenges. They wanted us to deliver readiness. And so we couldn't talk about, you know, obviously we could document and address any new issues that arise with the hyper-propulsion system. And we did that. We did that actually uh, a few times. But what I really wanted my team to embrace was we were all part of the solution. So if there was a problem, whether it was either the equipment or the fact that there was no documentation on how to operate that equipment or or fix that equipment or optimize that equipment, then we were uh, we were part of the solution. So we were actually creating some of that documentation as we operated. And once I got the crew to really buy into that kind of self-assessment, self-correction mentality, there were no holes barred. We literally, well, on, on our deployment, we, we actually did a daily operational meetings. And so one of the things I instituted uh, during those daily operational meetings, even when I was there for XO, I was XO for 18 months and then took command about midway through deployment and then commanded through that second 18 months of my tour. But as XO, we instilled a philosophy where every time we actually would brief our daily offspring, we would look at the previous day's operations and we talk about three big lessons. What are the three big lessons we learned today? And they could be either communications related or equipment related or process related or talent management related. And we would actually make adjustments on the fly. And we actually got to the point where anytime we would actually brief a major evolution and we would have 250 people in the wardroom, I made sure that every single person, regardless of how junior or how new you were to the Navy, you had a voice to speak up if you saw a safety issue, if you saw a uh, sleep deprivation issue. And yes, that happens, at least it used to anyway. But I wanted folks, I, at the end of every session, I would stand up and say, okay, and look every single person in the eye and say, okay, are you guys ready to do this? We've got a lot of moving pieces tomorrow. If anyone's not ready for whatever reason, maybe you've got a bug, maybe you've got some home issue that affects your current state of readiness, mental readiness to be able to do this, you know, no harm, no foul. If you raise your hand, we'll find someone else to take your spot. But what I didn't want to do, Keith, I didn't want us to actually get up to the point of execution and then have someone say, well, you know, I just, I stayed up for 28 hours and now I'm sleep deprived. And, you know, I'm not in a position to be your master helmsman when you're pulling this ship into port or when you're transiting the Suez Canal or whatever the case may be. I just really wanted to make everyone comfortable to be able to, and, and sometimes a lot of those issues could either just be addressed with just a small adjustment to the schedule or just a modicum of training and say, okay, you don't understand how this really works here. Let me make sure you're ready to go. And maybe put that person on a under instruction watch and say, okay, you sit this one out and you're going to watch how this goes and then we'll have you up ready. But not making it a penal environment where people get penalized for not knowing, making sure they're comfortable saying, hey, you know, I didn't understand what you meant. This actually happened to me. You know, there were 
I actually had uh, captain standing orders and standing order number, let's say standing order number two, did not actually align with standing order number six or seven. And one, 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 in one of our debriefs, uh, one of the junior officers pointed it out. And I was like, ah, you know what? You're exactly right. I'll change my standing orders to make sure they align. But they needed to see that I was all in from the top. And they would also be willing to come forward with those type things from all levels. And, and I, I think our team, you know, we were very good. We were very good at communicating. And you still had your normal, you know, human to human interactions and, and those challenges as well. But really just embracing those challenges and not focusing on how either engineers designed the ship or what type of support we either did or didn't have and actually taking ownership of all of that. It was just a powerful thing. And I loved it and loved taking that also to to Giant of South, which was my first interagency tour and just a really different environment. I had the pleasure of working two years for a Coast Guard two-star. So it was a Coast Guard command. So me being a Navy guy and being there as a deputy, I learned a lot from uh, Rear Admiral Chris Tomney. And he just really educated me on, you know, not only, not honestly, not only how the Coast Guard really just performs above and beyond the call of duty every single day, but also just their ability to bring a, a whole slew of authorities to any problem set that the U.S. military can't. And it's the law enforcement piece, it's the interaction with all of our three-letter agencies as well to get the mission done. And that was just a, it was just really an enjoyable tour that helped me understand servant leadership from a whole different perspective. And that actually helped me become a better strike group commander when I went to ESG-3, commanding the Navy's largest strike group with 15,000 sailors and 15 ships and trying to move all those people's uh, those people around as well as places and ships and making sure that people were where they needed to be the ships were ready to go on their deployment when the time came and just maximizing readiness across the board I love the way that you create this environment where people are willing to approach you and you allow people to have this environment that's non punitive as well and Obviously, if if someone's going to do something outside the lines, outside the guardrails, there's a pun- punitive in nature, right? But you create those guardrails where people can have some flexibility. And and that's wonderful because that non-attributional environment is so important to, to take those to learn and to have creativity and to have curiosity and to actually challenge yourself. And we don't always see that. And the times we really don't see that is in every accident report, every mishap report, right? That's when we go through and review it. That's when we see those instances of people staying up 23 hours or putting themselves beyond their limits where they didn't know exactly what they were doing because they didn't, they didn't want to speak up or say what they needed to say. And so that's a great testament to your leadership, to being a true servant leader, to pulling those things out of it and creating that environment. Because when we don't, that's when those really bad things happen. And and too often in the in the news lately, we've seen some instances of that. So a lot of good leaders can learn from that about what we do in those environments to stop those things from happening is creating that environment where people can actually speak up and have, you know, be a part of the the solution, as you said. So I, I applaud that. And I think that's wonderful. And then there is, as you well know, you've had great opportunities to, to participate in humanitarian evolutions. And in those environments, you don't always get the time for rest. Uh, you alluded to it sometimes where you have to do certain things outside your purview to make decisions. And 
a lot of times in those humanitarian efforts, the, the operational tempo is very high. There's, you know, and people go, they stretch themselves because they see the need is high. You went to Haiti, you went to Katrina with your ship that you saw the great devastation there. You know, that's a lot of times you see people wanting to help people. So they stretch themselves a little bit. And that's when, as a leader, you have to kind of pull in the reins a little bit, help make sure people watch themselves, take their rest, take their limits. So you know, as true servant leader surrounding themselves with other servant leaders, how do you manage, you know, lead other people to take care of themselves in those environments? Because that's, that's when we see people tap themselves out a lot because they want to, they want to help people. Yes. Well, perfect segue. You know, one, one of the pleasures I had following my command tour of Macon Island was to work two years on Capitol Hill as a Navy Senate liaison. So I got to know a different side of our government working on Capitol Hill. And I got to know some of the, uh, some of the senators and a lot of the staffers there. So fast forward to me going to Key West and Hurricane Matthew bearing down on, basically bearing down on, uh, on Haiti. And the, uh, the four star at Southcom basically was started his, his meetings and wanted to know who was he was thinking about a response team and trying to position his forces as any good four-star would do. And I raised my hand and I volunteered to go. And I ended up flying from Key West, flying to Jamaica and linking up with a Marine Corps force of about 250 Marines that were coming from Honduras via helicopters. And we all linked up. Uh, I took command and then we landed within 24 hours of the hurricane passing in Haiti. And we ended up using the airport right there at Port-au-Prince as our headquarters. And we were literally delivering relief. And, and any relief mission is pretty much the same. You want to do three major things from a military standpoint. Anyway, anyway you, you want to save lives, as many as you can. You want to provide relief to people who who did survive the storm. And then you also want to provide temporary assistance to the government of the com- country you're supporting because we're there, basically the military was there supporting the State Department who was supporting the government of Haiti. And so we knew that our mission was going to be temporary. We knew that we needed to make a difference quickly. And we were we had about nine helicopters to do it with. And so being there at the airport actually worked out really well. And in all honesty, it was a lot like commanding Macon Island because I had my own airfield right there. So the, the relief and supply planes were flying in and we would break down the supplies right there and break it in the pallets and then load them on the helos and then send them out to the affected areas. So it was... Not, I'm not saying it was easy, but it, it, it actually worked out really well because the airport was fully intact. So where the congressional liaison piece comes in, one of the senators, and I won't call any names, but uh, one of the senators decided to fly down because his constituency basically said that the U.S. wasn't doing enough. And we were we were delivering water, we were delivering blankets, we were delivering relief supplies, we were providing medical care, we were basically doing all of that on a very short timeline. And so the senator comes down and he's you know calls a meeting in the embassy, and I'm I'm the operational commander, so I'm literally thinking about how do I set the conditions so nobody walks into a helicopter blade and dies in this peacetime mission. I want to make sure that everyone's still you know, operating professionally, but operating safely. And so the senator calls a meeting with the embassy, uh, with the ambassador and 
asked for me to be there also as a joint task force commander. And once I got done fussing under my breath, because I was busy doing other stuff, jumped in the car, went to the embassy, and the senator's really just reading everyone the riot act about not doing enough. And so when he gets to me, he says, so I understand you've got nine helicopters and you're only flying six of them. Why is that? And so, you know, I, I honestly said, I said, Senator, this is a peacetime mission. I need to make sure that I maintain readiness on all of my aircraft. And by the way, the amount of supplies we have only requires six. So I'm not going to fly nine aircraft at the risk of damaging any one of them. I need to keep some in reserve and cycle them out so that we can continue, continue doing the maintenance and not interrupt the delivery. And as soon as I kind of gave him that very tactical level explanation, he backed off. And I'm like, come on, <laughs> come on, man. You know, I, you know, they didn't send me down here just for my good looks, you know, <laughs> but they sent me down here because I've done a few of these, but it, it was really just a good experience. And, and we actually, you know, and, and again, the senator understood, you know, I understand he had a job to do. And uh, we got him out to one of the cities and we got, you know, got some really good photos of him delivering some relief supplies and we got some really good stories from it. But what I wasn't willing to do was have a senator come from Washington, D.C. and tell me how to do a one star's job. I mean, I, my, my responsibility is well below his pay grade. So, so bottom line, it all worked out really well. Uh, and I can honestly talk, you know, hours about the education I received during the two years that I worked on Capitol Hill. But I, I, I did recognize that politicians are just people as well. Once you figure out what their interests are and, and from a military uh, standpoint, when you're wearing the uniform, you support their interests as long as it uh, aligns with the Constitution and what we're required to do. And that's that's pretty cut and dry. But to me, I just I just thought that was really interesting how, you know, his constituency told him we weren't doing enough. He believed it. And so he came down and started doing one star stuff. <laughs> and, um, and and so it, it went off swimmingly. Uh, we We provided relief. The nation of Haiti was very thankful. We didn't have any major incidents, uh, but about midway through that entire evolution, I actually directed that we do a stand down. We did a safety stand down uh, because we'd been running hard right up until right up until that point. And I said, look, guys, this is this is a peacetime mission. And the great thing about humanitarian assist disaster relief missions is that these are missions that you can tell your grandkids about. You know, a lot of us you know, have the opportunity to serve in combat. Uh, however, once that's done, those of us who've been there and done that, you don't necessarily want to talk about it. But when you're actually making a difference in the lives of someone else and you can see them, you can see their families and you you can see, you know, the, the suffering that's been alleviated just because of your efforts. That's a beautiful sight to behold. And, and going back to going back a few years to, to Hurricane Katrina, it was almost the identical conversation uh, with my crew on board USS Whidbey Island. Uh, we pulled up off of Biloxi and we sent in about 100 sailors every day on LCACs, the uh, landing craft air cushion vehicle uh, vessels, to go ashore, clear debris, work in the soup kitchen, 
kitchens, provide blankets, do whatever we needed to do to make a difference in the lives of fellow Americans. And that's a rarity in, in the life of a, of a Navy sailor because most of our business is done over the horizon. And so that was a defining moment on that tour as an 05, because once the crew saw the power of a naval vessel and its crew, we actually had an opportunity to just really turn everything around. And the entire performance of that ship just was uh, just off the charts after that. And again, just back to uh, Joint Task Force Matthew, we literally did everything that we needed to do. And I think America was in a much better place uh, in our relationship with the Caribbean following that response. Also during that tour, we evacuated in preparation for Hurricane Irma, which I uh, lovingly called the hurricane that ate Florida, <laughs> because uh, not only did we have to evacuate seven, 72 hours before, uh, we evacuated our op center up to the Tampa area and our admin center, uh, admin folks up to, up to the Orlando area. And the hurricane ended up coming across the Keys and then turning towards Tampa. And so we ended up shutting down the, uh, the op center in Tampa and evacuating them to Orlando as well. I've had quite a bit of experiences with uh, humanitarian assist missions from all aspects, but I will tell you the human component of that just really makes a difference to those who are providing the support. Yeah, those are some great stories. And I think your first story, you know, talking about the senator, it's interesting because there's times when people might give in to the senator and put some aircraft in the air just to appease someone of not just a senator, anyone of higher authority. And so what happens in those cases is then we might run the aircraft too much like you talked about, and then we end up losing some aircraft to maintenance or and then we're not ready for other missions or we're not ready to even maintain that that peacekeeping mission or that humanitarian mission. And we run our personnel more ragged because then they on top of the humanitarian mission, they have to do ma- more maintenance and things like that. And so what you did there by holding your ground was by being a real true servant leader. And sometimes we we misunderstand a lot of times. I get a lot of feedback after doing this podcast. A lot of people, I shouldn't say we, a lot of people misunderstand what being a servant leader is. And sometimes it's making those hard decisions where you have to stand up to someone of higher authority and say, no, the right answer here is not flying all nine aircraft. It's flying six because I need those three ready aircraft for parts, for maintenance, for things like this. And so that I, that's a wonderful story. I love that you shared it. And taking that safety stand down another, what a way to preserve the readiness of the team. I remember my own time in Iraq where I went, seven months and my my one day off was I got to sleep in till 9 a.m. on New Year's Day. So, you know, right. in seven months, that, that's, that, was my, I, I, that's, that was my one day off. So that's not, that's not a stand down. That's, you know, that's the opposite of what you're talking about where we, when I got home, I, it was, I was burnt out. I was run down. So, and now I've done 15 major hurricanes in the Coast Guard time and it's different. We, that, We've, we do it a little bit better where we take care of people. We, we rotate people in, we rotate people out and, and it's, it's a good system. So it, it, it matters to take care of people and it's, it's both mentally and uh, physically fatiguing. So it, it requires yep. a lot of that. So I appreciate everything you talked about. Yeah, I agree. After all this time in this wonderful career, what do you think has been the, the pinnacle? Like if you had 
to say, like, what teaches you that servant leadership is the answer, like that keeps you coming back? You're a true servant leader. You've, you told me even when we've talked that you, you ascribe to it, you believe in it. So what keeps you true to servant leadership? What keeps you coming back to it? I think it's just the people. And I go back to my 06 tour because it, one, I, I knew enough by the time I was in 06. I knew what mistakes not to make, but I also had a better idea of how to really motivate people where they are and how to meet them where they are. So we did a few things that were just really, in my opinion, and I, I don't have any evidence, but I think they were really cutting edge things on board Macon Island. And again, with a thousand sailors and 75 officers, my goal was to try to optimize that team. And you get some commanders, commanding officers who want to be everywhere all the time. And that's just physically impossible. And it's just, it's a plan to fail if you try to approach it that way. My choice was to try to empower people to understand how we wanted to do business. So one of our uh, mantras was buy the book every time. And, and I also follow that with telling people that, you know, if the book is wrong, we do have a means of feedback to adjust and update the, the book. And so once people understood that, I, I think they were, they were fine with it. One of my other mantras was uh, excellence is a journey, not a destination. I never wanted anyone to get really just boresighted focused on either perfection or excellence, because once you get there, the situations have changed and you need to continue evolving with the situation. And to me, excellence is just a continuous pursuit of constant improvement. And as long as you're assessing how you did things previously, whether it went well or poorly, uh, you're always going to get better. And as, as soon as you get the entire team to embrace that mindset, not only have direction and guidance from higher, higher authorities, but also be able to assess, well, I missed this step and I should have done this, this and this instead of that, that and that. And have them do that in a safe environment, then the team is is guaranteed to get better. I would tell you that we were able to accomplish that on Macon Island, and we were able to really set a culture on that ship that, honestly, 12 years later, you know, she was uh, she was brought into commissioning around uh, 19, or 2009 timeframe, and we went on our first deployment in 2011 and 12. Since then, she still continues to be a ship that performs very well, just got back from deployment here recently. To me, that is all about the culture of the ship and helping people understand you're part of making this great. During my uh, crew indoctrination, when we had new people coming on board, one of my conversations was always talking to the younger sailors and helping them understand that you're not a kid anymore. Didn't allow any of my chain of command to call any of our junior sailors kids. Because I wanted them to understand that you took the oath for our country and to support and defend our, our constitution and our country just like I did. You've agreed to put your life on the line just like I did. Every day at sea on a ship is a dangerous environment. I'm not going to call you a kid. These are adult things. And I helped them embrace that and help them kind of get away from things that we all did in high school. But I also opened the door for them and said, look, as an adult, I expect you, if you don't understand something, and I always use the, exam, the example of sweepers. You know, if somebody tells you to do sweepers and you don't know what that means, ask the question. 
don't get in trouble because, you know, the master chief told you to do sweepers and you didn't know what it means or you didn't do it. No, ask the question, what exactly is sweepers? And we as a chain of command, we're obligated to help you understand what it is we're asking you to do and even show you if it requires that as an adult. If you don't know what it is you're asked to do, then then ask the question. And we we're obligated to help you get to that right answer because it makes the entire team better. Yeah, that that's a such a powerful example. I really, really, really appreciate that not calling him a kid. I'd never ever heard anyone take that mentality before. And so often, whether we talk about, you know, the generational differences in each service and how you know, we talk about old timers versus youngsters and this is my service or you're ruining my service and different things. There's all these different ways that we can take this approach, but this is such a powerful empowerment tool to say, look, you belong here and I expect you to step up. And I just really, that mindset, I'm thinking, I'm going to think about that for a long time. And I'm going to use that as the challenge for this episode just to, in whatever organization you're in, think about ways that you can create symbols or language of belonging for people. Mm-hmm. Like Cedric just did that right now by saying, you know, he won't let people call people kids. Think about the language use. The words matter. The way we do things matter, whether we're, you know, old timer versus youngster language. These types of phrases matter. They create schisms in our workplace, in our organization. So, how do you create language and symbols of belonging? Think about it and break down those barriers so that you can create better communities in your organizations and better belonging throughout your organizations because that really matters. And with that, I'll also make a plug for the National Naval Officers Association. I, I'll tell you, if I could have made one difference in my career, I would have joined earlier. That's the one difference I would have made. I, I, and I think if you talk to anyone that's a member of the NNOA, they'd say the same thing. It's an amazing organization that connects people that want to elevate themselves using Cedric's word and and really help each other. It's a community of servant leaders that want to work together to build better people, better organizations, and that just kind of takes the foundation of wanting to build equalizing forces where they an ability for there to be equity throughout the services, but to create that for everyone in all different levels. So I think there's power in the in a way on all different levels, but now they just create this this massive ability for mentorship and connection throughout the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Coast Guard that just creates this massive diverse group of people that works to build people growing and growing and growing. So I I advocate for it. If you're a former or current member of any of the C services, I encourage you to join. And if you're not a former or current member of the C services, well. There's a, a recruiter near you that you can <laughs> you can join one of them so you can join the NOA later. So <laughs> that's my plug. Well, uh, any final words to close us up on the episode today, Cedric? I, I just want to say thank you for that plug. And you are absolutely right. I, I think there's plenty of work to go around. We certainly, as we embrace the challenges of an all-volunteer force, uh, we have to figure out every single way possible to make sure every volunteer has the ability to contribute to the readiness of our forces. And uh, we're we're not going to, you know, although I was coming on a National War College, I'm not going to talk about national security and um, how we are are facing our our pacing threat or any of those things. Uh, But the bottom line is with an all-volunteer force, we're obligated 
to make sure the playing field is as level as possible so that everyone can give their absolute best. And NNOA is in that business of, of making the entire team better across all forces. And in all honesty, once we transition from our time as uh, commission officers, a lot of us, uh, a lot of men, NNOA members and, and those who have been either mentored or coached by NNOA member, members go on to do bigger and better things uh, in our nation as well. Uh, and, it, and, and we honestly are just a microcosm of the nation. And we are always seeking uh, ways to improve how we do business, where we do business, and uh, certainly building on why we do business the way that we do. So in and in a way, is certainly a game changer for the sea services, but certainly for our nation as well. Oh, I totally agree. And thanks so much for those words. And thanks all of you for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. And I hope you've been edified because I sure have. And I'm so glad Cedric could be with us today and have a wonderful day. 